You're listening to the Pennsylvania Woodsman, powered by Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network. This show is driven to provide relatable hunting and outdoor content in the Keystone State and surrounding Northeast. On this show, you'll hear an array of perspectives from biologists and industry professionals to average Joes with a lifetime of knowledge. All centered around values aiming to be better outdoorsmen and women, both in the field as well as home and daily life. No clicks, no self-interest, just delight in the pursuit of creation. And now, your host, the man who's too good to stop for a roadkill deer to check it out, Mitchell Shirk. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, we are closing out the last month of August here, last episode of the month, and then we're rolling into September. Finally going to start having the summer winds change towards fall, which I'm always looking forward to. I got a month before I'm ready to hunt, uh, unless you're unless you're hunting in a special regs unit, which one of the places that I, I hunt is in a special regs unit. I could be starting two weeks sooner, but uh, probably not going to happen, to be honest with you. But I have been getting ready i've been jam packing a year's worth of of season preparations into two weekends is what i did so last weekend i probably said something last weekend i was out working on the one property and that's actually in the special regs unit didn't did a bunch of work there and i talked about that last week's episode and this week i had rented a loader uh, a skid loader a skid steer on tracks and I, I had a whole bunch of dead ash trees on my property at my house here, and <clears throat> I had cut them, the majority of them, down in the winter time, and actually cut them into pieces of firewood and thought, ah, you know, over time I'll slowly work at getting them out, work at getting them out. I had built a woodshed at my house, or I slowly was building a woodshed at my house, which it's now done, but I thought, yeah, I'll slowly bring firewood down and split it here and there, and it just never happened, so I had loads and loads of firewood you know that's cutting pieces it needs to be split so i decided well i'm going to get a skid loader i'm going to bring all that firewood down but when i have the skid loader here i had a little bit of yard work i wanted to do with it but the the big thing that wanted me to get it was my food plot that i des- i built a few years ago and everything else it was built the where the opening was on my property and it was never shaped the way I wanted it and I finally decided you know what if I get a skid loader here are some places with some brush that I'm going to clear that brush out and I'm going to change the shape of it because there was too many hard edges in it and it was not very conducive for deer to slip in and feed through and the, the way it is is like I've got bedding on either side of me left and right and uh, there's there's a couple staging area that like there's a there's a place in the backward it's an orchard that the deer go feed and to the west of me there's a bunch of crop fields and I'm stuck in between that and my property is very very thick like all the overstory trees are dead so it's very thick from that perspective and I just wanted it to be something that they could gradually as they move through their property it was not it was just an easy slight turn into a food plot do a little bit of feeding uh, come to my water hole that I've had there for a few years maybe get a drink and then slip back out and there was no hard turns up and down the hill so I cleared that out and I used the brush there was one section 
um, separating the yard and the woods that the screening just didn't come in real well. And I just decided I was going to take that brush and build a brush wall. It was only, oh goodness, it was only probably 15 feet wide at this section before the brush covered up and screened the yard out really well. So I just uh, I, I just built that brush wall up as tall as I had for brush. I removed a couple trees with the loader, smoothed it out, and then uh, planted it and drug it with a chain and it's ready. And the other thing I did too, because it had grown up so thick, there was places where a lot of the trails had grown shut just because it was briars and brambles and stickers. And a lot of the trails that used to be there or maybe weren't that great in the first place, I ended up making like a network of trails with a skid loader. I kind of took the from the corners and you know, pushed away with the loader real slow and made gradual paths that they could come down into the, the centrally located hub where mock scrape, food plot, waterhole, all that good stuff is, just down to one spot where I'm going to call my kill spot. And I, I don't have any other stands there. I may hang uh, a tree stand over on an adjacent property I have permission to that I can get in and out of a little bit better just because of the way the woods are. It's better in between some thick cover and open hardwoods and stuff. And it's probably a good stand for like, it, it is a good spot for morning uh, rut movement in October. And it's more easily accessed on this ridge. But for my property, I just stay low. I have one stand for this small property. And I, I feel like if I stack my odds there, I can hunt it fairly often be low intrusive and uh you know should be be high odds but the one thing i got to go on a rant a little bit about when it comes to that we're in a world right now with hunting where public land is the cool thing to do and i i am all for public land hunting for for many that's their only option for many it's a chosen option and for anybody who can go out and hunt public land and consistently get it done and have fun and do their own hunt, that's awesome. Keep doing that. However, there's this conversation or vibe amongst the hunting community. It's not within everybody, but you hear it on another podcast or you know you, you chat with somebody's opinion. I mean, perfect example is any time nowadays if you show a picture of a buck you killed, have you ever been doing that with somebody and they go, oh, did you kill that on public? My thing is, who cares? I've said this before, I'll say it again. Do your own hunt, do what makes you happy. But I want to bring up another point. There's a lot of people that come from that side of the spectrum where you hunt private, knock on door permission, low input costs, and want to knock people who have private land, uh, do improvements and and then shoot deer on that. You know, there's like this negative asset, like, oh, anybody can do that. And if you have that mindset, my guess is you probably don't have a ton of experience doing that, or you don't see the whole picture. Because from my point of view, it is more work than you can probably imagine to do it right. It's tiring. I worked my freaking tail off for hours and hours and hours. Granted, it was my own fault that I waited so long and I did it, but I worked my tail off just the same as somebody who goes out on public land, grinds it out, scouting, walking, figuring out stands. I put all that heart, that thought process into my property, then manipulated it in a way that, now, do, does my hunt 
is my hunt a little bit easier? Absolutely is. There's some variables I'm able to control. And I, I have it set up in a fashion that's easy for me to access. I don't have to hang a stand in the middle in the dark or, or carry a stand and carry heavy loads in. So there's some differences from the actual physical hunt. But the preparation, the work, I don't think anybody could argue that it's more or less one way. And at the end of the day, it still comes down to this is something I enjoy and if you enjoy doing it too, don't be ashamed of that. And if you enjoy doing public land and you don't want to do private land manipulation, that's okay too. I'm just going on a rant because it's just, again, have your own hunt. Enjoy yourself. Don't bring, don't bring people down. Don't bring each other down. we got enough of that going on in this day and age. So embrace each other even though you've got some differences. I will make this statement. I might be sticking my neck a little bit out a little bit on this, and I could be wrong. I think if you take a quality property, a quality private land piece of land, and name whatever hunter you want, you know, think of all the the bigwig buck killers of in the country, and I'm sure everybody has their own people. You know, if you had a a deck of cards, who you'd stack for for the best deer hunters in your mind, and many of them, let's just say they're they're public land hunters. I guarantee you most of those guys could go on a property in year one and probably have a good chance of killing the best buck in that area in, in year one because they're good hunters. They understand the lay of the land. They know how to how to read sign and go in for a kill, probably better than I do in some cases. But if you take that same property and then you put them on it for 10 years in a row, I question if they would consistently kill the same the best deer in the neighborhood on that property, or if there'd be a diminishing returns. And the reason I said is because even though you're a fantastic hunter, it doesn't mean you understand property management, um, manipulating a hunt in a way that's going to be better quality and aspect. Some people do, but there, there's a learning curve associated with that. And I've, I've seen it where good hunters struggle. Why do you think there's, there's consultants out there for private land habitat manipulation? Because there was a learning curve associated with the right and wrong things to do, and they don't want people to make the same mistakes. Even really good hunters, but from, from looking at confined borders... Um, there's a learning curve there and how to do that on a consistent routine basis. Uh, those private land hunters and whoever you want to say, I, they're the people who can do it regular because they know the, the work that needs to put in and the balance associated with managing a property and a herd and, and trying to consistently kill mature bucks. Is one better than the other? Not at all. Just a, just a thought, just something to f- food for thought. And the last thing I, I want to say to for before I, we get into this week's episode is I am extremely blessed to have the knowledge and experience that I do from the private land side of things. And I'm going to give that all credit to my hunting mentor growing up. Now I don't, I don't throw his name out and I, I don't, so, cause I don't think he likes to have the, the spotlight in a lot of cases. And I, I, I won't say his name, but he knows who he is. And I appreciate, like, the stuff I was doing this past weekend for my property, that wouldn't be possible without him for the very reason that he taught me how to run equipment. He, and not that I'm an operator by any means, but he taught me, put up with me breaking stuff for years and 
gave me so much hunting knowledge that I'm able to apply and mold on my own. And that's something I could never pay. And I got a great appreciation for it by, A, I worked my, my butt off for one weekend. And he does it all the time, like just relentless. I don't know anybody who puts more work into their land and trying to kill deer than that that individual. And I, I was laughing because at one point throughout the weekend, I got the track slipped off. It slipped off of the uh, the line. And I had to get somebody to come and put the track back on. I just, you know, side swipe. You know, I, I was I was backing around and there was a stump. I got a little too close to it and it just clipped the stump and it pushed the track to the inside and had to get that fixed. But I'm thinking, you know, stuff like that. Can I do it? Yes, I could, but I didn't have the tools and lacked a little bit of the knowledge and how to get in order. That's so why I had to get some help. And, you know, my, my hunting mentor that I'm talking about, that's something that, you know, could fix anything but a broken heart. And this, this hobby, land management, it's, it's, it's expensive, it's time consuming, it's hard work. And there's knowledge gaps with, with working and manipulating landscape. It's dangerous. Um, it's not easy. Like there's so much that goes into it that from a, from a, just a deer hunting perspective, you probably don't realize so I had to throw that out there because I appreciate that. Uh, most of you listening to it, you don't know who that is. For, you know, some of you know do know who that is, and, and that's great. That's no problem. But you know, I, I appreciate just the pre- as I was doing this work, I just had that appreciation of what I what I have at my disposal and what I've learned over the years. So I'm thankful for that. And I'm excited for this season. I'm hoping, I, I was just thinking about this on cameras. Every property I hunt, so the, the two I talked about, there's one other property I'm going to hunt this year that I haven't done anything to. I'm just going to hunt it. I've got, got some cameras out with a friend. Um, I, I, I may hunt the, the main property I've always talked about with, with my hunting mentor. Um, but you know, there's one part of me that feels like, I because this has been such a busy year with working on my house and everything else, I haven't done any work there and I'm I don't want to be that person that just shows up in hunting season and hunts um so I'll still go out there and and enjoy the hunting season with them and and sit with my friends and have that camaraderie aspect that I've enjoyed so much it's my favorite place to hunt but you know when it comes to my own personal hunting I I might not go there quite as much um but the the all I think about all the properties that I can hunt I've got a deer on camera that of the caliber I would shoot at every single property and that's exciting so I'm optimistic all right enough rambling let's get to this week's episode this week's episode I'm speaking with a guy from the Sportsman's Empire Network I'm speaking with Nick Otto Nick joined us last year around this time to have some some conversations about uh, you know deer season uh, preparation uh, meat care after the harvest but that was more towards the colder end of the hunting season and rifle season and in, in passing the you know, past few weeks and stuff, I had a bunch of conversations with Nick and managing venison and wild game, uh, just, just picking his brain on how to be better at it. And he brought some perspective or, or taught me some things that I never really knew and then gave me some ideas for handling venison in the early archery season and I I thought you know what Nick we got to do a podcast on this because I think everybody here that hunts September into early October heck even into late October sometimes we're getting some warm days and you know you got to figure out how to manage your venison unless you're going to take it to a butcher shop but if you're like me I shoot multiple deer throughout a year most times and I don't want to pay 
butcher bills every time. So uh, we're, we're going to talk about early season care, what's the what's the best way to handle it, and then what are options that you have. I'm going to I'm going to dumb this the the poor man's cooler, poor man's walking cooler, and some ways that you can take. Uh, inexpensive tools or appliances and turn them into something where you can buy yourself some time. If you shoot a deer and you don't get it back until Saturday night and you, you don't have the time to butcher it and it's 70 plus degrees out, you know, how can you get that meat cooled down and maybe buy yourself some time? Maybe you're like me, you've got, you've got kids and family obligations and you can't butcher it the weekend you shoot it, uh, but you need to buy yourself some time till next weekend. Well, how are you going to do that uh, in a sensible way. And this, this, uh, poor man's walking cooler, I think is a good option. And he's going to talk about that. And we're just going to, we're going to talk about some general, uh, maintenance, uh, on equipment and, you know, how to maintain quality venison in the early season. So I think let's leave it at that. It's a great episode. I think it's good to get you prepared because we're right around the corner with the season. Before we do get to this episode, real quick, shout out to our partners, Radix Hunting. Uh, just got in a bunch of cell camera pictures from my Radix M cores. They working great. I'm really happy with them. Uh, for cell cameras, the image quality is really good. And I really like the, the way it's, they're so easy to set up with that Scout Tech app. Uh, much easier than some other apps that I've done and uh, really really great response time from any of this the support team of any issues I had one I spoke about another I had a had an issue getting one set up and it was just a sim card was bad and they were immediately responded sent me a new sim card all set up ready to go all I had to do was swap it out and boom it worked so that was exciting new in the block for Radix check out their hang on tree stands hang on tree stands and their sticks I just got some sent to me and I'm going to be testing them out. Like I said, they're new for this season. They got out a little bit later, but they're still readily available. I have uh, two stands I can think of that I want to hang, and I'm going to test these racks, tree stands out. Um, but I can tell you that that option, the other thing too is keep in mind that they've got the options for all the stick and pick stuff for their trail cameras. So check out Radix Hunting. And with that, let's get to this episode. Joining me today for this week's show, the Pennsylvania Woodsman, is none other than my friend from the Midwest. Nick, oh, no, wait, no. I don't like this intro. i got to do something better for this guy. So okay, joining okay. me from today's show is none other than the man himself from Michigan that wishes he was from Pennsylvania, where the interstate is his drive through <laughs> Mr. Nick Otto. How is that? That's a much better introduction for him. Much, much better, Mitch. It is great. Uh, to be here with the man who won't steer you wrong and will kill, continue to shoot straight. This has been good. It's been uh, nice to get back on and talk with you guys. I mean, Pennsylvania, yes, it is a great state. I don't know. My heart and soul is here in Michigan, but uh, it's always it's always nice to come visit you guys over there in the Keystone. Absolutely. So as we're uh, recording this, you're on a little bit of a summer vacation, right? Yes, this is our last hurrah for the summer. Um, my wife's brother was getting married in Marquette, Michigan, uh, way up in the UP and that's upper peninsula for those that are in, uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, so we did, there was a week of festivities for that, but we figured, Hey, if we're going to love the camper all the way up here, we're going to enjoy it. So now we're on this week, we're in 
uh, Indian Lake, which is the southern part of the UP. And then we're going to kind of work our way back. We're going to spend a couple days here, a couple days there, just exploring, hiking, and having a great time here in the great state of Michigan. Good deal. Yeah, we were just talking off air right before we got started about how the the ingenuity has to happen when you're on the road and you're trying to run your podcast show. I was doing it when I was on my trip this summer in Canada and everything else. So the the uh, ingenuity is great, and that's kind of a little bit what I wanted to talk about with you today. Because out of anybody that I've talked to on the Sportsman's Empire, if there's anybody that's got some tricks up their sleeve for stuff, it's going to be Nick. But before we get into some of that, um, Nick. Let, let me allow you to introduce yourself and introduce your show on the network. Yeah. Uh, name's Nick Otto, and I am the Huntivore. Um, the whole idea is I love to hunt and fish. Um, I'm going to definitely tune into all the other shows on the Sportsman's Empire for getting tactics, for getting tips on gear, for trying to figure out how to get close to that buck or get close to that doe uh, or get on that boar. But when it comes to after the shot, that's where the hunt of war will ring true because my goal is to make sure that after after the shot, after you've acquired that animal, that you get the best use out of that animal. I love to talk about ways to field dress, uh, different ways to butcher an animal, whether it be one with four legs or it be a, a feathered friend. We're going to find a way to, to break that down and then ultimately get it to the plate and be able to celebrate that harvest. Uh, with friends and family. So that's what the hunt of war is all about is, uh, you know, you do the hard work of getting the animal down. The work isn't done yet. And that's where then we pick up and we talk about all things after the shot. Now, I know you have a little bit of a background in agriculture too. Did you have a background in butchering and meat processing in the first place? Or is that something that you've just kind of grown a love for over time with your love for hunting in the outdoors? Um, it all kind of fruitions just off the poultry farm. Um, I want to say that's where I get a lot of my, my geniuses, I would say, is coming off of a, being a, a farming kid is that we had to make do with what we had. And then even on the business side, uh, we were lucky enough that, uh, we have a processing facility right on the turkey farm. And so there are photos of me standing on the meat line at seven years old, I'm, I'm at a, I'm at a table, but I'm actually, I'm standing on a chair so that I can get up and, and run a pin feather, uh, basically like little, uh, tweezers to pull the pin feathers off the bird. And so I've moved my way, you know, growing up in that family, going up and down that table, uh, doing the different jobs, learning how to take apart, uh, a turkey. And from there, like that really got me used to working with a knife that got you me working with joints uh or how to cut through a bone or you know how to keep most of the meat on a cut but at the same time be able to get the most off that carcass into go into grind and so that's kind of where my upbringing started as a kid is both outside at the barns but then inside the processing plant so then the transition came to well if i'm gonna hunt i want now a four-legged critter I, at first I didn't know what I needed to do, but then I started to look at, well, this, this shoulder joint right here at the elbow looks very much like the knee of, of a turkey. Or, well, if I'm going to cut a bone in half, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to use the same kind of like bit, or excuse me, the, uh, the saw blade tooth size. I want to use that same boning knife when it comes to deer. Yeah, it's going to be a little bit 
longer of a pull, but at the same time, the translation of butchery, anatomically too, you're speaking like, there's only so many ways to put a joint together. And so once you know them on one, one animal, it translates easy to another. And so that's been an easy transition. Um, but at the same time, I'm a hands-on kind of guy. I like to get my hands dirty. And, you know, if I got to, if I got to look something up on YouTube, if I got to find a book, um, shoot, I was looking at the syllabus, uh, starting out as far as going, looking at the syllabus that the University of Kentucky was putting out for their butchery program. Um, I was looking at those, those, uh, resources to figure out how can I translate that into venison? How can I translate that into, uh, using other, other animals such as boar or even, uh, upland birds? So it's been fun to be able to then apply those different, uh, tactics onto different animals within the hunting and fisting, hunting and fishing realm. Right. And it's, it's, it's part of the hunt. It should be an automatic part of the hunt. I feel like it's something that doesn't get talked about enough. Thank goodness for the hunt of ore. Um, thank goodness <laughs> for, for people, you know, that join your show and have knowledge of this to help us because I think the average Joe Schmo, you know, like myself, um, I've got a lot to learn. I've learned a lot over the past few years. I've learned a lot listening to your show. And uh, I always, whenever i got questions, I pick your brain. And uh, the, the one topic that I really want to discuss is um, – Kind of, I want to kind of go down a rabbit hole of early season. You know, we've got uh, in, in here in Pennsylvania, we've got some units that open up archery season in September, like right around the 16th this year. The, the statewide opener this year is September 30th. Uh, we've got um, we've got archery season runs the entire month of October. We have a week long, actually, I correct that. We have a week week long muzzleloader bear season followed by another two weeks of archery bear season through the month of October into November. And, man, some of the, you know, it seems like the last few years, some of the hunts that I've been on have been 70, 80-degree days at that time of year. And meat care is always a concern. I mean, there's been a lot of nights where I said, I am shooting a buck or nothing. I don't want to deal with a deer tonight just because it's hot and, and the processing and everything else like that. And, uh, you know, there's also times where I want to shoot a deer when I want to shoot a deer. So what limits me is I don't have the tools. And I want to talk about kind of the poor man tools and kind of kind of the process behind it. Um, you know, you you also do some bow hunting in the early season, too, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Nick? Absolutely. Um, same thing with that poultry farm is it gets busy right during the time of uh, the firearm season in Michigan here. Everything, uh, you know, all our attention goes back. Uh, to the turkey farm right there around Thanksgiving. So getting in early is has always been a tactic of mine. I want to get in quick. I want to get something in the freezer. I almost have the, the backwards mentality of a lot of guys is I want to get in quick. I want to put that dough down. I want to get something in the freezer because that's going to alleviate the stress for me later on that now I can look for that buck. Now I can start being choosy. Um, I don't know. I know some guys, they're, they're choosy at the beginning because they know they have time. And yeah, my, my hourglass is flipped. I want to get in, get my deer, and then, you know, then I can wait out the buck on the back side of that. But just like you said, yeah, sometimes some of these hunts in October, man, I've been out in a t shirt and it's been 75 degrees sitting up in a stand. You're like, oh my goodness, it's, 
if I do put a deer down, I need to be on top of this thing right away. And that's if I don't sweat to death or, or die of mosquitoes sucking me dry sitting up in that stand at the same time. But yeah, early season is one that I really want to get something done. And you're right. I, maybe it's global warming. Maybe this has just always been a, a thing that's been a, been about us. But at the same time, it's like we got to figure a way to get that meat dry. We got to get that meat cold. And we want to be able to get that meat prepared and put away in the freezer if you're going to take something early in the year. Yeah, well, let's start by, I want to know what you personally have at your disposal to, for preparing when you're going on an early season hunt. And then let's talk about some options about what people can have. But like first and foremost, like before we're going to go, if you don't have a walk-in cooler and you don't have uh, any large space really, um, you know, that's that's kind of what I want to figure out is what we can acquire at not a lot of cost. But let's let's start off. But like, what do you have at your disposal? What are you doing right now this time of year after the shot, and you're bringing a deer into your your shop or whatever? Yeah, I have. And it's it's been tried and true, and I know a lot of guys have them. It's the refrigerator sitting in your garage, uh, or it's the one in your shop. Um, I've got one refrigerator that I, I i do a lot of my uh charcuterie in there i do a lot of meat hanging in there i've actually retrofitted the uh drawers to come out or the, excuse me, the shelves to come out and i actually put in some metal um slats in there just so, to beef it up because you're putting quarters in there but i have one fridge that's dedicated to just deer and beer beer goes on the door deer goes on the racks you hang up the quarters, you find a way to get it in there. And by being able to take an animal early here in the season, uh, that refrigerator gives me a couple days that I can now have to get this animal completely butchered out and then get that into the freezer. Could I go, well, I guess it depends on the size of the animal, but that's like my first go-to piece of equipment just because it's going to provide me a couple days. If I want to age an animal for longer, I really like to get between uh, like seven and 12 days, either that, you know, week, week and a half. That's a great time to be able to let an animal hang, but you also have to have really good conditions. And if you don't have those, having some sort of refrigeration, even on the residential scale of a refrigerator is going to be super helpful. Right. It may not give you that full seven days. But what it's going to provide you, it's going to give you three days that you can figure out, okay, can I get this to a processor? Can I cut this up myself? What do I need to get? And then at that point, I can break it down. I got room in my freezer then at that point, and then it can go in. So that's my first go-to piece of equipment um, that I've been able to use. It's just a retrofitted refrigerator. Um, let, yeah, let me stop you there for a second, Nick. Go let's, go, let's go back to the field for a second. So, you know, shoot a deer and pretty obvious that we're going to field dress the deer as quickly as possible we're going to get it out of the field as quickly as possible and we're going to hang it up and we're going to skin it as quickly as possible now uh i typically am going to wash it out as good as i can i might split the rib cage i might split the deer in half completely depending on what i want to do do you have any preferences of of how you you split or, or hang a deer about that but my, my main question too is is if you wash a deer is it important that you you know I, i've heard of people that say you need to you know take 
shop towels and dry the deer off and get that moisture off as quickly as possible. Of other people say you put fans on. I, you know, some people say you don't need to do any of that. I'm not sure what the what, is there a right course of action? Like, what is our ultimate goal for meat preservation in this state, not including the the temperature side of things? I'm going to this is a great way I'm going to answer this. And I'm going to a recent this past um, spring, um, I got a chance to go on a hog hunt down with John on the uh, Oklahoma Sportsman's podcast, also part of Sportsman's Empire. Um, he invited us down and we were able to take some hogs and shoot. Oklahoma's just hot all the time. And what we were able to do is we got those hogs in. Now, granted, they're not an ungulate. Um, the hog is, is built a little different. It, it, you know, it doesn't blow up with gases as much like a deer, but it's still, this whole, this example still works out. Once we brought that animal in, we field dressed those animals. We split them, uh, right down the middle in halves. So you could go with that on the, the big one we split in half. A couple of the other ones, we, we just opened up the belly and I actually used a couple sticks and just jammed them in there to spread open the, the rib cage just so I can let some air flow through there. We did take a hose and wash out the cavity because we did break uh, one of the, one of the um, intestines on one of the hogs. So that was already a must is that if you end up getting into the intestine, if you get into that gallbladder and spill bile or you get into the stomach, I know some people say, Hey, you know, you want to keep everything dry because the wet, anything that's moist is going to uh, rot quicker. That That is a point, but at the same time, you got to get all that fecal matter. you got to get all that uh, um, acidic stuff out of there, whether it be the bile, whether it be the feces, that has to come out. So spraying is always a good idea. Uh, but we had temperatures that got down into the 50s at night. You know, it was still really warm during the day, and it would get down to 50s, but we had moving air there was just this constant breeze down there and so by hanging the animals up from a it was a pecan tree actually hanging those up off of a branch and letting that air sweep across that meat uh or at least along the inside of that cavity when we got up the next morning and i took my hand and put it on the inside it was bone dry on the inside of that i didn't have any residual moisture and on those halves they were they really had a good tack on the outside they had already dried out at least that that membrane on the inside of where the ribs were at, that had dried out completely. It was kind of like separating a little bit, which was excellent. Because at that point, you have a dry surface. That is not going to let bacteria start to grow in those situations. So now let's say you put a deer down in Pennsylvania or even, even a bear at that point. If you can hang him up and you can get that rib cage spread open so that air can move in through that, give it a spray out, and as long as you've got a breeze going across the area, that's going to help be able to wick away any of that moisture that you've got on the inside. If your temps are getting down into the fifties at night, like you can get away with that. You're going to, your, your animal's not going to spoil as long as we can get that body heat off of them. So that's what that, or that's what that breeze is going to do, opening up that chest cavity. But that next morning, that's again, when you have to be on top of it, because if we're out away from, refrigeration you just got coolers now now is the time you want to start using some of your butchery skills breaking those down so they can fit into the into the coolers at that point 
or if then if you had to go go to a processor, you want to be first in line to get to that processor. All right, folks, it's that time of year for fall food plot planning, and this year I'm proud to be working with Vitalize Seed. I work with them because they're great people and they're extremely passionate about wildlife and soil health. My fall food plots will be planted in Vitalize's Carbon Load, a 16-way diverse mix that is highly attractive to whitetails and has countless benefits to soil and soil health. If you've ever been overwhelmed by the hundreds of different seed blends on the market, check out Vitalize's 1-2 planting system. It's designed how nature intended, to make biology work for you. Now each plant species in the blend has the proper ratio of seed to grow synergistically, not allowing any to outcompete another. This provides season-long forage for wildlife as well as benefiting the soil biome. There's no need for complex crop rotations with monocultures that are susceptible to drought and overbrowsing. Whether you plant with fancy no-till equipment or a bag spreader and a lawnmower, Vitalize can work in any food plot. For more information about Vitalize and soil health practices, visit VitalizeSeed.com and be sure to follow them on Instagram and Facebook. Radix Hunting was founded on premium-grade trail cameras and continues striving to produce the best cellular and conventional trail cameras on the market today. The Gen 600 is a second-generation camera from the Gen Series line. With premium video and audio recording capabilities, this product has become well-respected as the HD video trail camera. In addition to the Gen Series cameras, their M-Core cellular camera has all the features of a quality cell camera at an affordable price. Along with their cameras, they offer stick-and-pick trail camera accessories to allow you to set your cameras just right. You can find it all at RadixHunting.com and be sure to follow Radix Hunting on Instagram and Facebook. Want to check out Radix cameras in person? Stop in at Little Mountain Outfitters in Richland, Pennsylvania and have a peek. Now, back to the show. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense from a moisture management standpoint. Now, from a temperature standpoint, you brought up the 50s. That seems warmer to me. So, like, where is your cutoff before you're like, this cannot hang overnight? Because, I mean, I think about early season, most of the deer that I've ever killed – in the first three weeks of the season, I kill in the evening. So I'm going to be dealing with the deer that night. And, you know, I, I, you know shame on me, but I always get to the point where, like, I want to get the bare minimum done so I can go home and go to bed. Because a lot of time they're late nights in the first place. So, like, where's the cutoff at hanging a deer? As long as, yeah, if it's just going to be that overnight, I mean, shoot, you're already going from a hot animal running at near 100 degrees and you're exposing it to 50 degree nights that's where that temperature is going to equal or that's going that temperature is going to continue to fall in that animal in that carcass until it gets to that 50 degree mark is that safe no but at the same time if you don't have that availability an overnight is not going to spoil that animal because you've gotten the major heat producer being the um the entrails getting that gut out of them, that's going to help help you preserve that meat. If I'm going to leave one hanging up for more than overnight, I'm, I'm really wanting 30s. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can kind of risk it with 40s if you're watching it. If you have, like, if it's going to be 40s at night and only get up to, like, 50s during the day, find yourself a shady area. Um, if you're at a hunting camp or even if you're just kind of in the area where you've got a shed that's dark and it's got a concrete floor that can act as a heat sink where it's going to get down to fifties and stay nice and cool. That 
that concrete's going to stay nice and cool longer so that you keep that deer next to that or inside that shed where it's nice and dark. That's going to be one way that you can help maintain that temperature lower or at least the lowest that you can find there at that point. But I would say overnight, I mean, you're already exposing it to lower temperatures. Then you're going to want to have to find that, uh, that refrigeration at that point. So yeah, aiming for thirties, you can make do with forties, fifties. It's, it's one of those, you just, it's something you have to do at that point. But other than that, yeah, it's otherwise it's going to be too warm. Right. We're, we're talking about that based on like if you're at a camp or if you just have nothing at your at your place in order to make that happen, that'd be a one night thing. But let's talk a little, you know, ideally we're going to have a walking cooler or something that we can get that, that temperature down. Um, so let's kind of go down the avenue. I talked about this with you on the phone not that long ago, and that's what prompted me to want to do this podcast with you is I, I called it like a, a poor man's walk-in cooler, so to speak. And you talked about the deer beer fridge. Let's get into that. Let's talk about um, initial setups, what we want to want to look for as far as equipment. I mean, can will any old refrigerator work? You talked a little bit about modification that you did in yours. Let's, let's go into a little bit more depth with that. Yeah, I, I chuckled too because I feel like that's kind of one of those. I mean, I love gear just like the next guy. And being able to spend big amounts of money on hunting-specific gear and, and, and items I, I love to pick up some of those things, but then there's other stuff that it's like, man, I just can't afford that and to sustain, and to sustain my family. At some point, the hobby's gotta, gotta get creative because other, like funds are already allocated to something else. So with that, you do get to hit those creative wheels going and having things be not a singular use, but to have them have multi-use is going to be beneficial. And so that's where I get into like my deer and beer fridge is that I, I it stays in my garage all year and it it's used. I mean, I, there's beer in there from my buddies come over. They always, you know, some of them leave a six pack from when they're, they're pushing a deer. So it's like, there's always like uh Coors lights in there. There's always Miller lights. It's it just grab and go as you please. I've gotten into making charcuterie and, and that's where you're really aging out pieces of, um, either sausages or even whole cuts where you've got them in uh, a vac bag. I've been working with a company called my dry where you can actually like dry age for long periods of time. You do need the refrigerator in order to do that because the compressor helps uh, pull moisture out of that refrigerator, keeping it an arid environment. So that's how this whole thing works for there. So what I did for my fridge is I pulled out all of like the little glass shelves in there that, you know, they can support a gallon of milk, but that's probably about all they're, they're not going to take a full deer leg. Or at the same time, it's a heck of a mess trying to clean up after putting the deer in a refrigerator because you got blood all over the place. You've got purge all over. It is just one of those things you're constantly cleaning it out. So that's where I went with these wire shelves. Um, from there, I hang one up nice and high. I can take the leg corners and tie them from the underneath with a hook. And I've basically made myself, it's not a walk-in cooler, but it'll hold a whole whitetail deer. Whether it's a, whether it's a big buck or whether it's just a little doe, it will hold that deer in there. As long as you just kind of keep getting your pieces and your primals situated just right. 
you know, there's sometimes where your fridge is even uh, not going to be enough and you might have to have something even bigger. You're taking multiple deer or you've got a camp situation where you've got guys taking multiple deer. Having a bigger area that you can control temperature is going to be even better. And that's where I got this year. Uh, I have a, an eight-foot uh, chest freezer. I'm sure a lot of people have these chest freezers. And as as uprights are getting more and more popular, if you check like Facebook Marketplace, if you check Craigslist, you can find a chest freezer for super cheap now. Whether it's a little small one that's like, you know, a four, you know, four cubic foot, or I got the big long eight footer one. Actually, that was a, a loaner from the farm. It, uh, it's going to be able to help control the temperature. And you're like, Nick, you're going to freeze all the meat. Well, if you go on to Amazon, or I'm sure you can look at tons of different, uh, retailers, I ended up going on Amazon and finding an Inkbird freezer thermostat. This, uh, device allows me to plug into the wall. It's the power, it becomes the power source. And there's two plugs that are then where I plug the freezer into that thermostat. And then actually the thermostat itself, you drape inside of the freezer. And now I can set the temperature, whether I want it to go all the way down to freezing. I actually set mine to like 34 is going to be the low. And I went to like 40 being the high. And at that point, when the temperature inside of that freezer got to 40 degrees, that would kick on the power source. It would turn on the freezer. It would then chill it down to 34 degrees, where it would then kill the power at that point. So I essentially turned an 8-foot freezer into now an 8-foot chiller that I can then take meat, hang it in there. I've got now more days to play with, with multiple deer. This was the setup I dreamed up actually going down to Oklahoma and coming back. Now I got three hogs. I got several hundred pounds of meat. What am I going to do here? And that's where just using a little bit of ingenuity, using just a little bit of creativity, thinking outside of the normal walk-in freezer, this is how I'm going to be able to preserve all that pork. Here's how I'm going to preserve all that venison for just this minute amount of time. What's nice about it, I unplug it. I can push that freezer out of the way. It can go into storage up until next season when we can get it ready to go again. So now if we use either setup like that, if, if somebody goes out and uses a fridge and and can keep it in there or they use a, a, make a chiller out of a, uh, a chest freezer, do we need to be concerned? We already talked about airflow earlier. Do we need to be concerned in either of those situations that we're not getting moisture out or like – what, what are some lookouts there, I guess? You can overload a residential refrigerator with a, a really slick, wet deer. If it's really wet out, I mean, that compressor is going to be working really hard. Um, it's going to pull off a bunch of a bunch of moisture. But what can also happen is yet you can, essentially how that works is the compressor uh, draws air across the cold coils now, the cold coils are going to then ice up with whatever moisture is being collected through there. But then as the refrigerator goes into its defrost, that's where it, or it melts, goes into the pan, drops out the tube that then goes to the bottom side of the refrigerator. If, if you're overloading it with too wet of an environment, 
you can keep that thing from having it go through its defrost cycle, and then that's where it's going to be basically trapped with moisture. It can't get rid of that quick enough. So that's where a refrigerator can buy you. That's what I was talking earlier. It can mm -hmm. buy you a couple days. It can buy you two or three days. Is it going to be able to handle the full seven days for aging? Now, if it's humid out, probably not. It's not going to hold up. It's not going to keep up with the amount of moisture. If it's kind of dry out, you know, you haven't had, it's not raining out. It's not foggy out. It, it could probably get you through that seven days. Being in the uh, eight-foot chest freezer, that's where you might want to look at some blocking or at least a way to be able to lift one deer up on a shelf and have one deer below. Being able to work in layers so that you've got air that can run over that. Um, whether that's, I mean, shoot, opening the door of that thing, you're already going to remove a lot of air. As soon as you open that uh, that lid, air begins to circulate. You do lose a bunch of cold air. But at the same time, drier air is coming in. So opening that up a couple times a day just to move air around, that's not a bad idea. I've, uh, going along with the ingenuity thing, maybe if you've got a small little fan that you can use, like a, either a computer fan or even just a little desktop fan that you can set up on one end just to draw air going across, that can be helpful. Um, but at that point, the, both these setups are there to not necessarily solve all of your problems when it comes to aging uh, wild game, but it can solve the problem of I need something to do this in the next three to four days, if that makes any sense. Well, it absolutely makes sense because it's buying time because I know, you know, I mean, you were talking about working on the farm stuff, but that's not your main job, but you're a, you're a PE teacher, right? Yes, yes. When it comes to uh, having not a lot of funds and having to find a way to uh, – use items in different fashions, that's kind of a specialty that we have as educators. Well, well, sure. So, I mean, you're a dad, father of three, I believe. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm the same boat. You know, I've got kids. I've got a busy job. My wife has a busy schedule as well. So, you know, before all that, it was nothing that if I shot a deer the first week of October when it was 70 degrees out – I would just do my thing until I was done. And that just doesn't happen anymore. So I need, in order for me to be able to make the most out of the time I do get to hunt, and I want to kill a deer, I want to buy myself time. And this is what uh, this is what I wanted to talk about with you, because time, time is never a, a, a good thing for, for us in, in these situations. Absolutely. Yeah, you finally, like, hey, you know what? I carved out a little time. I'm going to go out on a Wednesday evening hunt. And sure enough, here comes here comes the deer that I want to shoot. I shoot it. It's down. It's now 8.30. You know, by the time I get that animal back, it's 8.30. I got to stop a second and go take care of the kids. You know, wipe off the blood first off my hands. Get the kids in bed. Or we got to go down. We got to take pictures with the deer. And we got to get them off the bed, get them on their thing. What am I going to do now with this animal that's laying right here? Can I find, can I find a shortcut that's going to get me to Friday night where I have the ability to be able to have a little extra time? Can I make it to the weekend? That's where that bridge is going to come in because yeah, pulling that skin off, getting those quarters out, get them hung up. I, what a relief to be able to have that be on limbo. I can press pause on this meat 
so that I can then come back to it later versus the, well, shoot, babe, I did this now. Now I've got to stay up all night and do this. My job's going to suffer the next day because I'm going to be wicked tired. And it's just this snowball effect. You know, at that point, you know, you're not, you can't give the best back to your family. You can't give the best back to your wife or your kids. And to be able just to say, hey, meat, hold out here a second in this refrigerator, go into this chest freezer, this chest chiller here. That is such a weight off your shoulders because mm. now at this point it gives you flexibility. As so, busy as we are, you just mentioned that, as busy as, as busy as we are, we want the most quality out of this animal. I also don't want to let anything go to waste. This is that opportunity that I can save as much of it because I now have this little shortcut. So if we, just to recap, the, the fridge, you said a lot of time, two or three days at the most, maybe longer depending on the situation humidity-wise, but the, the the chest freezer situation, you're kind of capped out at how long there? A, a week or maybe a, 10 days? Or, or what are you thinking there? I'm thinking the same way. Um, those those freezers, work, some of them work similar to the compressor style. Um, some of them are really good at pulling out moisture from those because it's going to be going into a, uh, a real chilled state. The top part of that chiller might be a few degrees warmer than the bottom because it is such an insulated sink in there that, you know, the stuff on the bottom is going to be much colder than the stuff on the top there at that point. You're going to be, because of that size, depending on how many deer you can get in there, yeah, it's going to give you maybe a couple more. You might be able to look at five days being in there. You might be able to look at, you know, seven days. But as far as, like, it, it's not wicking away moisture at that point. It's going to be just chilling that down. So I would, yeah, I would say that same same window is it's buying you a little more time, but it's not necessarily solving your whole issue of, a walk-in cooler that that is that creme de la creme that's something that the processors have and because they can get so many carcasses in and get, can get the money for it it can afford to do that that's one way to do that uh i know there are some you know there are families who have their own walk-in coolers they've got camps that have their own walk-in coolers and as we talk about it's here too technology is coming even further and further where there are units that now can do the same idea that you know we're overriding like with the freezer thermostat we're adding our own thermostat they're doing the same thing with air conditioners where now guys can take a, a you know whether it's a trailer whether it's a, a small closet in their shop or they build out uh this area where they can put some closed foam in whether it's spray foam or whether it's just the the foam boards but they put this air conditioning unit into the side and they override that thermostat with a controller. And at that point, they turn that air conditioner into the freezing unit, into the, the working bones of that. And at that point, you now essentially have made yourself a poor man's walk-in cooler. Uh, I think it's Coolbot. I think you can probably find that online. But yeah, it's one of those things like, you know, it's still going to be pricey because you've got to buy a certain size unit of air conditioner. But again, like if you can't get the walk-in built-in cooler, maybe you make one with with one of those. But if you still can't get onto one of those being the, the best setup, an okay setup would be go into that that chest freezer. Yeah, I think it really depends on what your ultimate goals are and, and stuff. Now, you brought up 
Uh, you brought up another topic, and I'd like to touch base on it a little bit. Uh, you touched about just talking about aging and stuff, and that's one of those things that people talk about, but I don't think a lot of people actually know what aging is, what the benefits are, what the, what the process is and how it works. Um, and, and, you know, I've heard of, you know, professionals with walking coolers and, and the right setup aging for a very long time, you know, 14, 21 days. Sometimes I've even heard of longer. And uh, let I want to talk about the benefits of it. But um, help me understand better because, I, 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 like I said, I'm slow and I, I probably missed, missed the, the point of uh, importance there. But how is it that? Uh, those professional setups allow it to go that much longer versus um, our poor man's setup? Is it just because of that air factor? Yeah, you're getting an industrial size condenser, you're getting industrial size fans, and you're getting a, a much more efficient a way of getting moisture off of those animals. The, those blowers are blowing air over top of those carcasses and even though it's not evaporating in the sense of of temperature wise all that moisture is just getting wicked out of it the condenser setup far bigger than what we can get on a residential scale and you go to a processor i mean it shoot it's it's going to be i can't even i mean they vary but at the same time you've got racks and racks and racks of deer that are sitting there if they, they got to have powerful units in order to do that. And so you're looking at, shoot, even as a power consumption, you, some of these units, you're looking at a three phase as a four, as opposed to like 110. <laughs> you know, we're running on 110 power here and maybe 210. Maybe if somebody's got the setup, they can unplug their welder and plug in, you know, some sort of condenser to really amp it up a little bit. But a lot of these are run on three-phase electric where you can't get those in a, in a residential setup. So with that much power, they're able to then pull off that moisture. They've almost got the, the condensers and the evaporators that are sitting outside. They almost look like household uh, air conditioners in the fact that they're trying to dissipate all of that heat and to get that off the meat and to be able to continue to chill those down. So it's just something that we, we can't keep up. Or, I mean, we just can't outmatch it's that's what it's made to do and it does a very good job at it so that's that's how like uh these these butcher shops can get away with it with aging stuff like that is because they have a far better fine-tuned control of that environment versus our poor man setup yeah we get into the aging and aging is such a like a wide variety because or i mean it's just a wide term Guys will talk about, oh, I, you know, I age it this many days, and I age it, uh, or I hang it with skin out, or I hang it with skin off. And aging, as far as an animal at, uh, at from death to a whole carcass hang, that is, I mean, you are aging the animal, but at the same time, you're basically letting the enzymes go to work. You're letting rigor mortis go through its full process. And so by letting an animal hang for a certain number of days, you are letting that muscle, you're letting all those muscles relax. You're letting everything soften to a point where it's going to end up being somewhere in an economical range of like the most tender that it's going to get. Uh, I thought it was Daniel Pruitt that wrote the article, but there was an experiment done on venison where they took 
several deer and they they tried them and they I forget the the unit of measure that they used for tenderization. But what they found is that from day one to day seven, they got the most tenderization happening as far as a scale. Exponential amount of tenderization was happening from day one to day seven. From day seven to day 14, there was still tenderization happening on that animal. It was still becoming more tender, but at a less uh, aggressive rate. That has, it started to slow down. And then from 14 to 21, it really started to flatten out. You could start to see where that bell curve was starting to get to its peak. You were getting to that stall point of as far as hanging a whole animal right around that 21 day mark well between 14 and 21 was going to be the maximum but as far as like the exponential amount of tenderization happening it really slowed down so i applied that into how am i going to handle my venison and if i can keep an animal right there between the like 12 and 14 day that gets me the most the most tenderization happening, but at the same time, it's also getting me towards that, that stall a little bit. But those are days that are manageable in my residential setup. If I can do that out of a fridge, great. It, it might get to a point where it's like, I don't know. It's not gonna, I'm not getting enough. It's still, it's still moist on the outside of the skin. I'm not seeing a lot of this moisture get wicked out. This looks like it's something that's going to have to happen, have to get butchered over the weekend. I'm at day seven. Am I ultimately going to be able to tell the difference between day seven and day 14? Probably not. Once you get, once you, pro, you know, once you properly process that animal, and if I had a, a backstrap from day seven and I had a backstrap from day 14, I bet it would be really hard to tell the difference. But at the same time, what I'm also getting from the benefits of that is I'm going to be getting uh, water loss off that animal. I'm going to be wicking away that moisture. It's going to be a dry, or the uh, texture is going to be drier. And it's probably going to make for an easier cutting piece of meat. Because if I've got most of that surface moisture off there, it's going to be a nice, clean cut that I can have on that. With less moisture, you're also probably going to be able to get more of that intense venison flavor. A lot of people are looking for that. A lot of people want more uh, of that venison flavor. And that's going to give you a more truer sense of that if it's less waterlogged, or at least less amount of water inside of its cells. So that's kind of a nutshell of how people will, will age their, their venison on the hoof or age it as a primal. Um, there's another set of aging, and people will get into this talk of wet aging, dry aging, and that happens more on the already, pro, already butchered side of it. If you vacuum seal your your venison pieces or your boar pieces, that is go essentially going to be wet aging. Wet aging happens inside of that bag, and you're going to get what's called purge, and that's moisture that's inside of the meat. That's going to work its way to the outside of the meat. So when you open up those sealed up bags, and you have, you're like, oh, look at all this blood that was still in there. Some of it might be blood. Uh, a lot of it's just going to be. Uh, water that was inside of that muscle as is, and it's going to have a pinkish hue. 
just because there's going to be mitochondria, just because there's going to be pieces of cell of cellular work that was happening, and so that's come all out. It's not necessarily just blood at that point, but that's going to be the wet aging process, and that can happen uh, just inside your refrigerator, having that sitting there. Then people talk about the dry aging, and that's where you get into restaurants that have these chambers that are set up for that. Uh, they wipe them. I mean, they, it's a sterile environment. They put these pieces of really expensive beef or really expensive lamb in there, and they'll hold them for months. I mean, we're talking, you know, 60 to 90 days they put those in there. And when you get them uh, at a restaurant like that, you, you, you get a morsel. You don't even get a whole steak. You get, like, just a, a cut of it. And it's almost like a... It's almost like cheese fermentation as opposed to uh, meat preservation at that point. You know, you want the funkiness. You want those flavors that you're going to get from that super long aging process. So when guys in the wild game realm, I think when they're talking aging, they're talking basically from like that day one to day 21. That's going to be the window that a lot of guys are doing that. Then they're probably going to back seal it because that's an easy way be able to hold that piece of meat, be able to put that in the freezer and not let it get freezer burned in that sense. You can go further, but that's where you're going to need some of that other equipment that I think is going to be just a little bit outside of our reach, unless that's exactly what you're wanting to do. Now that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, yeah, I think that makes it a lot more doable and understandable for people who are just like me and, and have general knowledge, but want to fine tune it and just be better. Um, so let's let's go with the thought that um, you know we're, we still don't have the time. Seven days isn't enough, Nick, and I'm I'm still just not allowing myself to go spend the extra money and take it to a butcher, and I, I got to come up with something. So I've heard of people um, taking the quarters, wrapping them in butcher paper, or vacuum sealing them, and then freezing them and thawing them out. Um, thoughts, advantages, disadvantages, good idea, good option. What are your thoughts there? Having tricks up your sleeve is always a good thing. Some of those tricks may not be the best, but at the same time, a lot of our circumstances aren't the best. So if you get to a point where you're like, listen, this thing needs to get chilled out. If I can get this inside of, if I can vaccine them, if I can really, you know, saran wrap and then get butcher paper on that and I'm going to freeze these and then I'll come back to them at another date, that is something that you can do. Mind you, you can't do it very many times. It's going to be a one, it's, you're going to have the grace, you're going to have one, one strike basically when you do that. And I say that not in the fact that the meat's going to go bad. But you open yourself up to the freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw. You're going to take that piece of meat and microscopically shred it with, with ice. When you, when you freeze a piece of meat, it already, has, it already has water either in it, in its cells, around it. Even if you've gone through that dry aging process of you know even 21 days, there's still going to be water inside of that meat. And when you freeze it, that the quicker you can freeze it, the better, because the shards of ice are going to be smaller. When you get into a slower freezing process, those shards tend to elongate and get 
big. So you have like, you know, the one, the refrigerator that you keep your ice cream in, in inside fridge, it's probably set not super high. And that wouldn't be a very good item or environment. That's going to make your big ice, your ice crystals that are going to do a lot of damage inside of that piece of meat. You want to go with a deep freeze. You want to go with one of those, either a dedicated freezer for when you've got the bigger cuts because it's going to freeze that quicker and it's going to make the crystals smaller. Those smaller crystals are going to then pierce less of the meat and they're going to have less purge out the backside. So we talked about when you cryovac your piece of meat, you pull it out with your wet aging, and that's where you're going to have, that's where your purge is going to develop. Once you freeze that, the, the ice has been made, you pull it out to thaw it out so that you can cut it up. You're going to have that purge. At that point, it's either use it then or freeze it hard again. And at that point, that it better be into ready-to-go cuts or ready-to-go pieces of meat at that point. So if I thaw that out again and I cut it up, I'm then going to want to have it into meal-ready portions that I can then freeze one more time. Because after that, if I have to do another uh, thaw freeze, it's just going to continue to pull more moisture out of that, and that's where you're going to get a try, dry piece of meat the more freeze-thaw that you go through. Mm. So if you can minimize the amount of freeze-thaw that you go through on a particular cut or on a particular primal, that's going to help you keep uh, more moisture inside of that meat so that you can then have a little bit of leeway when it comes to the grill or it comes to the paint. So, yes, that is a trick that if you need to do that, keep that up your sleeve. But mind you, once you uh, thaw that out, that's good. You, you better get it ready and portioned up. Either eat it now or get it set to go off uh, or have it packaged up for meal-ready events at that point. Um, I have seen, uh, actually, we do this at the farm with tender or some of the tenderloins. We actually backseal a marinade in the bag. If you've got a marinade you love to put on venison, why don't you, if that that point, you add marinade into that cryovac pre-meal ready-to-go bag, seal that up as is. It's now sealed in with the marinade. You put that in the freezer, it spends a little time in there. When it is ready to come back out, you let that thaw. It's pre-marinated, ready for the grill taking one step off of what you need to do to get that thing ready. So that might even be helpful when it comes to meal planning. I know that's something I'm not very good at as far as meal planning. I just like to make it all all at once. But at the same time, that's one way that you could have stuff ready to go. You need a quick Tuesday meal. You've got pre-marinated venison because you've already back-sealed it with the marinade in there. So that would be one perk to that little trick there. I, I've tried that, Nick, but one problem I was having, and I, it must be the vacuum sealer I have, or either that or I just don't have the right proportion of, of moisture marinade in there. It seems as though I, I I have an issue with a good seal on the, uh, yeah, a good seal on the, the vacuum bag. It, it seems like it's pulling moisture out, and then I don't get a a good vacuum seal. I'm not sure if I just need to add those little moisture wicking tubes in the bag or if, or if there's something I'm doing wrong, but that's one reason I've gotten away from that. Yeah. Depending on the sealer that you got, if you've got one of the countertop uh, sealers where it's actually drawing out 
uh, the moist or drawing out the air of the bag, it is going to go along in there. Now I've seen it's almost like a piece of felt, or I've heard it called a vac mouse, that has helped out as far as when I put that across the across the bar, that piece of felt sits between the two layers of the plastic. When I seal that down there, the one side catches the moisture and it keeps it keeps from all that being sucked into the bar, messing up with that. Um, so that's one thing to do is to use those little vac mouses. The second thing you could do is actually raise up the vac, put a couple books underneath that, make gravity be helping you out at that point. If you lift the seal so that, that now the bag has to lay down, moisture has to be drawn up and over, that might slow it down enough that you can get a good seal and have that, um, or that it'll slow that down. You can get that plastic heated up and sealed before that moisture even gets up there. Um, the third thing I think would be is to not try to hug your meat as much as you can, but come out to the edge of the bag, uh, giving yourself as much of that play there so that as the moisture continues to try and draw up, it's going to seal before it gets there at that point. So those are three things you could do is lift up the actual vac unit, use the full length of the bag, and if you have the vac mouse, put that in there. Um, I use a chamber vac. I, that, I guess, you know, when it came to the gear things, I did splurge on one of the chamber vacs, and that actually, uh, it doesn't suck the air out of the bag, but it sucks the air out of the chamber itself, and so it uses atmospheric pressure so that once it sucks all the air out of the, out of the chamber, it seals the bag, and then it returns the atmosphere, and that's where I get that suck down unit, so it's not drawing any moisture out of the end. So, chamber vac would be best play, but yeah, if you have the poor man set up with the countertop version, then yeah, using gravity, wow. using the length of the bag, and the little vac mouse, keep those handy when you want to be able to use uh, marinades inside of a vac machine. Gotcha. Um we're, we're getting towards uh, towards the end of us wanting to wrap this up, but I want to circle back to something you were talking about because you stemmed thought in uh, in some back straps that I've made this past year. Um, you were talking about the freezing, thawing, the moisture loss, and everything else, and I, I think you were kind of talking about the issue I was having with some of my back straps. So I, I'm hoping you can diagnose what I did wrong or at least point me in the right direction of how to do better. But I had, uh, had some back straps that I, I you know cleaned up I probably washed them off a little bit if they had some blood or gristle or something on them uh, put them in a vacuum sealer and and went my way then I, I thaw them and you know I, I you know the timing of how I thaw them depends whether I'm putting them in a, in some some warm water or putting them in the fridge and, and letting it process up but there were times where they would thaw out and it seemed like there was an extreme amount of moisture that would come out of the bag and the meat had like a brownish look on the outside and the, the odor was not the same as as something that seemed to have less moisture and was dried out. And was that just due because of the moisture loss from that meat or was just did I put it in too wet or like I'm not tr- sure why I was seeing it. Have you ever experienced something like that with it coming out? It's just like this isn't it's almost quote unquote gamey, I guess. I don't know. Yes, in a wet vac scenario, you are going to get uh, a tanginess to that to that piece of meat. 
Um, it's hard to describe, but unless you open that bag, and I, I know people have experienced this before, they either they've put it into uh, the sink or they've let it thaw it out in their uh, refrigerator. The, the longer that you've had one of those cryovac, and the more that you've let that age inside of the bag, as far as in a thawed state, you are going to get a little bit of, but it still can continue to tenderize even in that wet environment. But from that, you're also going to get a t- just the way the enzymes are working. You're going to get this tangy, I don't want to say acidic uh, smell to it, but when you open it up, I think it's uncanny that people will get that, that smell from it. That happens with beef. That happens with lamb. That happens with pork. That happens with all meat. It is aging inside of that bag, even as, as soon as it gets to that lower temperature. I mean, still, it's technically aging even in a frozen state, but just like as such a slow process, we can't barely tell. But then even when we get it to the thawed state, it's now continuing to age inside of that. It's continuing to tenderize. Those enzymes are still at work. When we open that, we're now smelling the result of that. Your meat's fine. It didn't. It's just the fact that it was wet aged like that and that it's ha- got moisture on there and it's got this tanginess. It's not bad. The brown on the outside is going to be an oxidation. That that is now, it was exposed to the environment when it went into the bag and it's going to, if you leave pieces of meat out, um, they're going to, they're going to turn bright red. And as soon as you pull them into a non oxygen rich environment, they're going to go brown because well, I, I guarantee when you took those back straps, you took them out, you patted them dry, you put them on the grill. When you sliced into that, you're back to your red, you're back to your mahogany, you're back to your pink color in there. It's just the outside of that that is oxidized because of that change in environment. So people will take it, even I do it, I take pictures of things when they when I cut them up because, oh, that, that brilliant, bright red. You put that into a vac bag, it's no longer in an oxygen-rich environment. That's where things go brown, and people start to freak out a little bit. Oh, my goodness, did it, it bad? Is it spoiled? Nope, it's just not in an oxygen-rich environment. That bright red is just on the inside. So go ahead, be able to sear, you know, cook that up, sear that up, and you'll be totally good to go with that. That was great. That answers my question. I'm sure a lot of people have had that too. Well, hey, we've been rolling for a while. This has been a great episode. I think this is going to get a lot of people thinking about how they can improve their setups and and fine-tune things, or maybe they just want to do it themselves for the first time, but they don't know where to start. Um, I know I'm going to start doing some Facebook shopping or something like that because I've been dying to do something on my own because I keep – basically half-assing the whole entire process and i need to have a system that works for me so i appreciate you you doing that um so before we go i want nick you you talked about this was all about creativity and ingenuity all revolving around meat processes but we i want you to leave us with what are some other redneck ingenuity things that all deer hunters should come up with and what have you come up with that's just a, a absolute money saver and game changer nick <laughs> oh man I, I i chalk it up to my uh i had a i had a dirt bike in high school and i had these cinch straps that i would use in order to, sh- to cinch it down and they were kind they were too short for 
too short for really going across the truck bed, but they just, they don't have the, yeah, they, they just need to be retired. So these old cinch straps that I have, they're, I mean, they're fine. They still hold, they still hold weight, but then they were just taking up room. And I finally, finally or, uh, got a saddle and I was using a saddle, but I'm a short guy and I needed aiders for my sticks. And I was like, man, I don't want to buy a big set of aiders because I don't know. It's, it, I'm, st- I'm still trying to just get used to this saddle. Maybe it's something I got to purchase down the road. Maybe I got to save up for it, but what can I do? Uh, in the meantime, well, I took those cinch straps. I made two foot loops and I now run, uh, one hook, one hook of the cinch strap up to my thigh on my right side. And I run a, the second strap, the second hook onto my left thigh. So I now, and I have a cinch or a, uh, bungee cord attaching the two of them. So they sit right close to my legs as I'm climbing up in the saddle. So I put a stick on, I pick one foot up and I put that hook on the first ladder and then I can step up and then I can add the next one. And at that point I'm onto the stick. So instead of buying a $200 or a $100 aider system, I just made it out of a couple cinch straps where the hook hooks on to the stick. And I tell you what, I'm kind of stuck to them. I think I need to put a patent on these things because they are sleek. They're out of the way. And shoot, I wear, I don't even take them off. Sometimes I get up in there and I just leave them. They sit right there on my thighs and they don't go anywhere. It's a, it's a real true redneck gem using sink straps for aiders. I wish I was more creative. I'm not a creative individual. I mean, I've done a little bit of tinkering like that and found stuff that was quote unquote supposed to be cheaper until I figured it out. It probably was the same price as just getting what I needed in the first place. Cause <laughs> I'm not that creative, but I did the same thing with my bow stabilizer. So I was shooting past few years. I've been shooting, uh, a front bar stabilizer. I've been back and forth between a 12 and a 15 inch bar up front. And I ran a 10, uh, anywhere from an eight to a 12 inch bar back bar. And I really like that shooting setup. But the problem was if I don't shoot a lot, um, then it just feels heavy. And I, I feels like it defeats the purpose for me. And this past year, I haven't shot that much. And, uh, with my shoulders bugging me as much as they've been, it's kind of nice having a lighter bow again. So what I did was I took one of my stabilizers and I actually found a, uh, it's actually like a, like a Jeep light clamp. Like, you know, those, you know, KC lights and stuff like that you put on Jeeps and stuff like that. Well, it has this, uh, this rubber molding piece in the middle of it and it's an Allen wrench that screws it down. And I just found the right rubber molding that would, uh, cinch around my stabilizer and then I just turned it into a side-mounted stabilizer, so it kind of offset the weight of my my sight and my my rest and all that stuff, and bounced the bow out that way. But it's done in a lighter fashion because I was running stabilizer setups that were expensive, or uh, I shouldn't say expensive; they were heavy and they were long to counterbalance that and make a stable bow. And it's great to shoot, but it's also a pain in the neck if I want to, you know, hike the mountains, bear hunting, or something like that in PA. So that was my little creativity thing. I just wish I was more creative in other aspects because I, I think it would just save me a lot of money and hassle. <laughs> And it's, it's that spark. It, you need to be put into a spot where it's like, I got to make this work or otherwise I won't have it. And I think that's where the true genius comes in. 
Um, if you have a, just another example, uh, my rangefinder, uh, I ripped the button off the, the top of, and, you know, I was like, shoot, it's no longer, uh, I, and water's going to get in there, dirt's going to get in there, this thing's going to go to crap real quick, but I don't, I don't have the funds to get another rangefinder. But I did find that the Roku button off of our old, uh, old remote fit perfectly where the button on the rangefinder was. So maybe it's just one of those things where find something that's laying around your house that you haven't used in a while. It might hold the solution to what you're looking for. So is it redneck? Absolutely. But at the same time, that's money saved that you can put into something else for your hobby later. You know, gear's great, but sometimes you got to make do with what you got. I think you're on to making like an Instagram reel of you might be a redneck in the form of the Huntivore. I like that. <laughs> Nick, this has been great. I really appreciate you coming on the show, talking this stuff through us. It was a big help for me personally, and I think it's going to be helpful for a lot of my listeners. So thank you. Anything you want to leave us with, and make sure you, you, you plug the Huntivore. Yeah. Um, hopefully more videos will be coming out, but I've got two videos that I think they're on the Sportsman's Empire uh uh, YouTube channel. Um, one of them shows you how to break down a leg quarter, uh, a hind leg quarter, and then I also have a shoulder quarter. Uh, those seem to be, get the most questions, and so I've got those two videos up on YouTube. If you are looking at doing your own and you just want something to check out, check out those two videos. That'll hopefully get you started. Um, and then, yeah, if you want to continue on with the conversation, check out the Huntivore uh, on Instagram. I'm at Huntivore. I'm always posting stuff that either, yeah, I'll, I'll try to repost some of my crazy redneck stuff that I'm, I'm throwing out together out there, but I also do all my dishes. Um, I try to be creative with my venison. I want to try and use as much of my wild game on a day-to-day basis. And so we're going to, I'm going to be trying different things. Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but I will definitely share and try to keep people engaged with what else can I do with my wild game. Uh, so check that out there on Instagram. If you have any questions, feel free to DM me. I answer everything that I get. Um, you know, if I can't get you the answer right away, I'll find out. I'll research it. And then that's probably going to be a topic on a show. So I'll make sure to plug you there as well. But yeah, anybody who wants to join in, they're more than welcome. Fantastic. Thanks again, Nick. We'll catch you later. <laughs>